The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, I have a very special episode. We're chatting with William Evanina, the CEO of the Evanina Group, a national security leader who spent 32 years in national security, including stints with the FBI, the CIA, and the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, where he was the first confirmed director. We're also joined by Rob Walker, the executive director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, which is gearing up to host the annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, taking place at the Omni Shoreham this October 9th and 10th. There is still time to get information and to register at hsenterpriseforum.org. They're both here today to discuss the forum, discuss this broader topic of Homeland Security and national security, the China threat, foreign investment, but they're also here, we're recording this, we're pre-recording, so on a very significant day, we're actually chatting at 11 a.m. on 9-11. All of us who work in national security know the significance of that day, whether we entered into a national security career because of that event or because we stayed and maintained. I know that both Bill and Rob have direct stories related to that day, so I just really appreciate their taking the time. Um, I know it's a day that's very significant, that has a lot of memories, a lot of moments to it. And so just really appreciate you, Bill and Rob, for being on the show and being with me today. Pleasure to be here, Lindy. Lindy, thank you for having us. And so, again, I know it's a meaningful day to you, Um, Mr. Evanini. You were a part of the Flight 93 response. And so that's really significant. I'm sure you've made some pivots in your career. And you recently highlighted in some testimony before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party bill that you believe we're in the midst of a terrorist event even today. So I thought, like, looking historically back at 9-11, what happened then and everything that's happened since kind of... What are your reflections as we just sit here to chat about 9-11 even today? Lindy, it's a great question. And myself and Rob and thousands of others, it's a day that we will never forget. More importantly, we won't forget every single minute of that day and the days that subsequently followed. I was an FBI agent in New Jersey at the time. I was in the violent crime squad. We had just come back. I was a SWAT team member from doing a couple of SWAT operations, having uh, some bagels and coffee in the squad area when the first plane hit and the second plane hit. We were just across the river from New York, so we could see the smoke. So I would say after the second plane hit and the towers collapsed, it was about 1130 in the morning where we obtained the flight manifestations from all the flights. And that's when we realized that New Jersey had a significant role to play where over time, 15 of those hijackers had resided in New Jersey. We got split up into teams. I was assigned to the Zayed Gerard team, the pilot of Flight 93, and became integrated into the terrorism investigation in the FBI known as Flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville, PA. So for the next couple of years, and I was no longer a violent crime agent, we all became terrorism agents, basically doing criminal investigations of all the hijackers in New Jersey, their whereabouts, following their credit cards, their movement around the U.S., how they were able to manipulate, get financed, 
We did a search at the Marriott at the Newark airport. We found all their you know, suicide notes and their clothing. So, and that began the entire process of what we called Pent Bomb in the big FBI, which was not, not only 9-11 the crashes in the World Trade Center, but also in the Pentagon. We'd be able to put together a strong case on Flight 93, as well as the 20th hijacker, Musawi. It was just a long, laborious, rewarding process. And I think, uh, as, if, as I think back about 9-11 and what that meant to me, not only to mention that fact as an FBI agent, you really took a day off for the next year or two, right? And then in New Jersey, subsequent to 9-11 events, we had the anthrax poisoning in our office, in our area. So that became an investigation a month later, and that was about three miles from where I lived in Princeton, New Jersey. And then we had the Daniel Pearl kidnapping and murder at the same time. So within three months, we had three significant national security endeavors going on at the same time. What I remember specifically about all that time and effort was the first time we as Asians had the opportunity to bring together and meet with all the family members of the deceased Flight 93 crew. Probably most significant day in my professional career, having an opportunity to brief and then listen to for five hours the members of that family at a hotel in Princeton. And it's something where I look back at to say, this is why I do what I do. This is why I did what I did. And this is why people who have a calling, whether it be in law enforcement, federal law enforcement, a police officer, a doctor, a dentist, you have a calling for a reason. And there's always going to be a seminal moment in your life. When you look back, when times are hard, and you say, this is why I do that. At the end of the day, most things the FBI does involves a victim. And when you have to deal with victims, it puts a different perspective on why you have that calling and why you do what you do. And 9-11 brought that perspective, not only to me and my cadre and the thousands of people, the FBI, the state police, the local law enforcement folks, but the community writ large was always going to, it's always going to be that seminal moment. We look at it and say, this point in time changed my life, changed our organization's life, but most importantly, changed the lives of every American for the rest of their lives. So I look back at 9-11 as being that seminal moment. As generations before us looked at Pearl Harbor, I think 9-11 is that same type of prospectal view of time and place that decades from now, people look back and say, hey, we had Pearl Harbor and then we had 9-11. So for me, it's a very solemn moment, but it's also a day that I look at as a career and life changing. Thank you so much. And then, so Rob, same question for you, kind of what are your reflections on 9-11? How did it change, pivot, enhance, evolve your career? Sure. I was a first lieutenant in the United States Army on 9-11-2001. I was stationed in South Korea and we were out for what was supposed to be a week of maneuvers and, and training and, and firing our, our artillery cannons. Three o'clock in the morning or so by the time we got the word and it just changed completely the, the tenor of the organization I was with, the outlook of the unit, and of course it changed our training plan. Uh, we went from hopefully moving back into our home base within the next day or two to spending an additional eight to ten days out. We didn't know what the threats were beyond, uh, of course, the the aircraft uh, in the States. Uh, so, of course, uh, U.S. military worldwide went into some uh, very defensive measures and very protective activities uh, from that day on. Of course, it changed the the trajectory. I, you know, when I joined the Army, when I when I graduated from West Point, the biggest threat we thought at the time, the close of the 90s and the opening of the aughts, was North Korea and their nuclear programs or, you know, perhaps a mild competition with Russia, we thought. Remember the greatest military engagements at the time were the Balkans. Um, you know, there were there were no heavy training exercises to go back to Germany or to invade any place else or, or to defend ourselves. That day obviously changed completely 
the way we postured ourselves as soldiers and as service members. So over the past you know 20 years or so, I've, I've watched friends and family serve their country in a variety of ways. I've lost comrades in arms, of course, through activities in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere around the world. To reflect on, on Bill's thoughts too, uh, you know, as we look at each of these activities that, and, you know, and operations that we do, we've got to remember that there are people at the end of the spear there. You know, that yes, buildings were hit on 9-11 and you know, nearly 3,000 people died that day. Every decision we make along the way after that also has people engaged, and, and there are there are families who have lost loved ones along the way. And I, I appreciate the sacrifice of many of those service members and those law enforcement families, our CIA and FBI, other intelligence professionals that have gone forward and worked to ensure that America is not attacked again by a foreign terrorist organization on our own soil. And thankfully, that has been a success over the past 22 years. Yeah, bringing those key stakeholders together is so important. So I think that's one of the things that the Homeland Security Enterprise Forum does. So I really appreciate you bringing it all together, Rob. Clearance Jobs is really glad to partner and to sponsor this year. We are encouraging others to come on board and join the conversation, join that community, join this event that you're a part of. So Rob, can you talk a little bit more about that? What is the Homeland Security Enterprise Forum and why should our listeners care, participate, and register? Kind of what can they expect from this event? And thank you to Clarence Jobs for your sponsorship, your promotional sponsorship, and look forward to having you moderate a session at the forum. We launched the Homeland Security Enterprise Forum uh, back in 2021, and we're proud to be hosting our third annual this year, as you mentioned, October 9 and 10 at the Omni Shoreham. We bring together private sector, federal government, state and local government, and academia and think tanks to discuss the current threats and opportunities facing our nation. We recognize that Homeland Security, while it was founded and started immediately after 9-11, has matured in its agency and its efforts since that day. Homeland Security does not mean just DHS, nor does it mean just counterterrorism, border security, TSA, etc. Homeland Security is really the protection of our domestic national security. It's ensuring that our nation can live free and prosperous. It's not just a home game versus the away game. It, it's an integrated effort across international lines. It's also across private sector and government lines. There are relationships and partnerships that are built through events like ours that help to elevate the need to address a concern, the opportunities that are out there and exist, and the recognition that Homeland Security is not just a government effort, it is a whole of nation effort. And that's what we try to do. We try to highlight that whole of nation effort to bring folks together in that conversation of partnership, moving forward and integrate solutions and actionable recommendations out of our forum. I love that you mentioned that whole of nation piece. I think that's really critical as we're talking about what are some of the things that we need to do to protect the enterprise, to protect Homeland Security. It does take that whole of nation approach Bill, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit and pivot to the conversation around foreign investment and how it affects national security. This is something that's come up in a lot of conversations. You've testified on the Hill recently about the impact of the Chinese Communist Party specifically, but a lot of that does relate to like how our nation responds. And I know like Senator Marco Rubio, I recently heard him talk and he was saying like, I think there's an awareness about the risks in some cases, but maybe not a willingness to respond. Do you think the average American company has that same mindset or are they just looking a little bit more transactionally? I, I think the way you raised that question, Lindy, you're clearly in the national security space. CEOs and boards of directors are not. 
they have a fiduciary responsibility to make their company money. That is their job. That's the baseline bedrock of capitalism, right? If you are a CEO and you make a financial or fiduciary decision to not make an investment or not buy a product that's gonna eventually going to cost you more money, your job is at risk, right? So there's a juxtaposition here that's really, really interesting uh, about the next quarter's earnings are the most important thing to a CEO or a board, not the long-term security of the United States. In their mind, and I speak to a lot of CEOs every day, that's the government's job. The government is supposed to protect us from these long-term threats, not me as a CEO or not me as a board member. I've seen a lot of progress the last three or four years, and especially the last two years, with boards of directors holding their CEOs a little bit more accountable and say, hey, how does this impact national interest, right? Are we in line with the key executive orders signed by the administration or Alaska or CFIUS? Are we a vulnerable for a CFIUS review? So those questions are coming about now because of the increased awareness campaigns that are out there. And more importantly, the willingness of victim companies and their CEOs to be willing to tell the stories of how they were victimized by the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's a big part of it. In five years ago, we didn't have that. We didn't have the willingness of the victims to come out because it has cyber implications, has regulatory implications, it has insurance implications. We are now being able to put in a posture where CEOs can come out and say, yes, we were compromised. We lost X amount of money. We were victimized. Here's my story. And that's the best way to tell a story is from like minds to like minds. And that's CEO to CEO. Yeah. And you mentioned like the board of directors piece of it. I mean, I think that's clearly an opportunity maybe to say, hey, how can some of these companies bring somebody onto their board of directors with a national security focus? Are there other maybe like simple steps like that that companies should be considering or taking to say, hey, how do we make, just make ourselves more aware of this threat or aware of this issue? Yeah, I think that's one of the ways we saw, you know, it's very clear the last two years, we saw an influx of cyber professionals being appointed to boards of directors, specifically in the publicly traded venue, because their insurance companies mandated it, right? So I think that was smart. Now, cyber is one sliver, a huge sliver, but it's one sliver in the homeland protection apparatus, right? I think you're going to start to see broader perspective of protectionism put in place on these boards to expand that cyber expertise to say, what is the business risk here of me investing in this company in Hong Kong? Or what is the business risk long-term of my vendors and my organization that are dependent on my products if we invest with this company in China? I think you're going to see more of that, I would say, enterprise-wide construct of security infiltrating into the boardroom, not just in cyber. Cyber is one, I think it's starting that process, but you're going to start to see more of a geopolitical risk perspective that's going to play a part. And I think what's going to be really important, Lindy, is that the individual who goes on the board who talks about geopolitical risk, short-term, long-term, cannot be the boy that cried wolf, right? It has to be fact-driven. Here are some circumstances that really at the end of the day, the goal should be to put some variables in your decision-making matrix to invest foreign or domestic. I think that's going to be the key. So they just can't go forward without saying we didn't know this. Now they have that information at their uh, beckoning call. Yeah. And I mean, a big piece of it is the involvement of the commercial sector versus the involvement of folks who are in the DIB or who have policy requirements around that. And that's one of the things that we talk about quite a bit at clearance jobs. You have NISPOM requirements, right, which are a baseline, but those should be considered a baseline. And there's a lot of companies who fall well outside the NISPOM, but who have critical infrastructure, a part of their mission. Again, the government is trying to convey a little bit more of that. Do you think that there is a push or a need for more regulation around commercial sector companies? Or, you know, there's always a pushback to say like, hey, we need more regulation. No, we don't need more regulation. So I'm not a regulation guy, but I'm an implementation specifics guy, right? We come out with a lot of executive orders 
stakeholders, a lot of policy, a lot of genre with very little follow on and implementation. So you leave it up to the companies to decide how they implement insider threat viable products. Well, that's very vague, right? So we're good in the government, but saying, here's the policy, eh, you figure out the implementation. At the end of the day, I don't know the organization where security is part of mission. It just doesn't exist, right? So at the end of the day, security has always been a cost center, right? An ability for companies to bleed money over there. So there's less of an, a willingness for CEOs and boards to put more money in security. You're talking about a lot of topics near and dear to my heart when you just start talking about implementation guidance, right? I think we're great at policies in government, but not great at that. And you say that, you know, like controlled and classified information. We were talking security clearance, wonky topics before. A lot of the things around trust workforce 2.0, we kind of had that issue too. Like we have a policy framework. When it comes time to implement it, a lot of the agencies don't necessarily know what they're doing. And the other piece that you touch on that I love is the communication side of it. I think a lot of our security officers and professionals are not always the best communicators. Very unlike you, Mr. Evanina, Rob, you guys are great communicating about the Homeland Security mission. A lot of folks in security don't necessarily have that confidence. So how can we get that confidence within the security workforce to be able to convey the topics well, get that seat at the table so that they're talking to the right stakeholders without being pulled away in some basement somewhere with a stapler. Well, Lindy, I want to pivot here a little bit to take this conversation into Rob's world, right? And again, part of a lot of things, I got to give credit to Rob with this form and the enterprise and the whole structure of what he's doing, bringing subject matter exports to his advisory team to drive these conversations. And I got to say that his forum, his group as well, does a really good job of not just taking the problems and solutions, but also how do we implement? And I think you look at the last couple of enterprise forums that Rob has put on, the lot of conversations, I would say the yabbits. Well, we have a plan in place to protect the border. We have a plan in place to protect TSA or homegrown violence. Yeah, but it's not working. Or yeah, but we haven't implemented a, a structured plan. There's a lot of yabbit conversations by experts on the ground in that field to discuss, yes, we have an executive order. Yes, we have a law. We have a policy. Yeah, but it's not working because of X. And that X could be a thousand things from, from funding to resources to willingness all that stuff. And I think Rob's forum really does a good job of bringing those people together in the government, former and, and current, as well as the private sector to say the yabbit. However, yabbit, right? The border is a problem. Yeah, but airline security, you know, uh, drone issues, all the way to foreign investment. Rob covers the gamut in this forum, but it gets down to the nitty gritty of how do we solve a problem from an implementation perspective? And Bill's going to help us address one of those yeah buts. Bill is actually one of our advisors. He's a member of the Homeland Security Experts Group, and we're proud to have him. I'm honored to be on this podcast with him. Bill's leading a track this year on foreign investment, and he's going to partner with J.C. Whitney Company's John O'Connor. And they're going to discuss with some government officials and with, as you mentioned, uh, former government officials and very smart individuals on this area, what the impact is to our foreign investment, both into the United States and U.S. investment out. Who are we choosing to partner with overseas? Do we need to chase that 15 to 20 percent return when we know that it's going to benefit the Chinese Communist Party directly? How do we address those sorts of questions from a CFIUS perspective, from a regulatory perspective, and really, as he's getting to, a corporate national security responsibility perspective? So there will be a private conversation uh, hosted under Chatham House Rule on Monday, October 9th. And then there will be a public plenary session that Bill will moderate on October 10th. 
on that very topic. I love that. So talk a little bit about cadence of like what folks can expect from the forum, like what kind of conversations, what kind of folks, stakeholders should be coming to this who have solutions to bring to the table, maybe who are part of one of these communities or ecosystems and want to be a part of the conversation. I like to think one of the things that makes us unique is the engagement aspect of the forum. Yes, we bring in the senior stakeholders from across private sector and, and the federal government, but we're also bringing in the mid-level managers, the director level, both in government and in private sector to engage in the deep dive conversation. The plenary sessions are meant to be the strategic engagement, the strategic messaging on the particular topic. And we will cover things from supply chain risk management, financial services, AI-enabled cybersecurity. We're still looking at perhaps putting quantum on the agenda as well. But what sets us apart, we like to think, is that we build the tracks with a deliberate off-the-record conversation where 30 to 40 people are in the room discussing the details of the challenge that we're facing, discussing opportunities to address that challenge, and then working towards an actionable recommendation. From those recommendations, then the Homeland Security Experts Group works throughout the year after the forum to see that some of those recommendations are moved to implementation. And our membership, we were co-chaired by former Secretary Michael Chertoff and former Congresswoman Jane Harmon. And we, our members are 45 strong, the who's who of national security, homeland security, state and local representatives of the past 20 years, have a strong influence. While we are not very public in the way that we operate, we are mighty in the way that we can move things through the influence of folks like Bill, Jane and Michael and others on the group. We take those recommendations from the forum. We host roundtables and engagements throughout the year with legislative staff, with legislators, with executive branch folks, and with private sector organizations to try to see those recommendations through to implementation. Those conversations are key. I love, I mean, the small but mighty angle is near and dear to my heart because you don't have to be, you know, the the biggest. You have to be, you have to work a lot smarter. And that's what the U.S. has always done. Like we've always been more nimble. We have better people. We have better strategies. And so if you bring those people into the table and get folks working and collaborating, that's really the special sauce that we have. And so groups like yours really help to bring that together and bring different stakeholders and have different voices. You know, we're not, we don't live in a country where everything gets mandated from above. And I think that's one of the key advantages. And that's what we can do is we can have discussions and forums like this and use them as an avenue to actually get things done in Washington. It can happen, people. Things can get done in Washington. You heard it here first. No, maybe not. So yeah, is there anything I didn't ask about or that you wanted to touch on either about this topic of foreign investment, what to expect on that at the Enterprise Forum or anything else? Well, I'm going to yield to Rob on the format because, listen, I'm excited about this because the forum brings together all those people we talked about. But more importantly, unlike anything I've seen in an environment where people come together, the why does matter here, right? So usually these conferences, you get all these presentations, blah, 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 blah. But this, because of the intimacy and the, the offshoots and the little happy hours and the private dinners you, and the Chatham House rules, you really get a no kidding discussion of why it matters. So I've got to give Rob a lot of credit for building a forum that's different than a lot of other security forums where we really talk about not just the issues, but the why it matters. So Lindy, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to close out a little bit. One is our theme for this year, advancing the enterprise. And we are using current and emerging technologies to hone in on that theme a little more. 
how can we set the right conditions for the adoption of AI or quantum or other new and emerging technologies or even current technologies that are further developing to help secure ourselves, to make the workforce more effective, um, open up the avenues to discuss new vulnerabilities that we may not even see right now. It's not entirely a tech-focused conference, of course. We are a policy organization before anything, but we understand that technology will be the backbone for the opportunities to make ourselves more secure. We're going to use that theme uh, to discuss also how the Homeland Security Enterprise and the National Security Enterprise are one in the same, and they should no longer be discussed as separate entities. We understand after 9-11 why the Homeland Security Enterprise was created. We expect that it will go forward as, as a national security priority and imperative, but that it does not need to be treated any differently than the DOD, the Department of State, the IC, et cetera, that we should work together to ensure that our domestic national security is engaging across the entire enterprise. That's the government, the, the federal, state, local, tribal, territorial sectors. It's the private sector. It's concerned citizens, think tanks, and academia. We are all in this together, and we're going to advance that enterprise as we move forward with our policies, with our actions, with our recommendations for implementation of new ideas. I love that. I mean, I love this. Bringing together the right stakeholders for engaging conversations can do a lot. It can accomplish a lot because as we've spoken to in this conversation, you can't solve these problems with a single executive order or a bill in Congress or through some agency. It does take the enterprise approach and advancing the enterprise in this conversation and I just think it's a great reminder, like the mission of Homeland Security has not gone anywhere. I'm really honored to talk to you both on this day. I came to D.C. because of 9-11. I am like, I love this country and the mission. And it's super, sounds super cheesy to say in this day and age, but there are still folks who want to work in this community. Our jaded political climate can make us forget how amazing we are and how amazing this community is and how we have such great voices, folks like you both who are passionate and care about the mission and national security and it's work that's worth doing and it's a conversation that's worth having. So I just appreciate your energy and capacity. As you can tell, I have a lot of energy and passion for this um, and hope to convey that to folks because it's, again, it's a forum that's worth attending. It's conversations we're having, and I appreciate folks like you who have a lot of expertise and are going to give back to the community. So check out hsenterpriseforum.org. I hope you all will be a part of it. I think they're going to let me go, maybe. I promise not every, if it's off the record, I promise not to talk about anything. But I got to shake Bill's hand and thank him for his service and always like to see you, Rob. So come to the forum, check it out. Be a part of the solutions and the conversations that are happening because this is a mission that's worth every minute that we give to it. So thank you all for the minutes that you gave me here today. I really appreciate it. Join the Homeland Security Experts Group for the third annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, October 9th and 10th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel. HF23 will focus on advancing the enterprise through the adoption of current and emerging technology to make America more secure and prosperous. HCEF is attended by senior government officials, private sector executives, and thought leaders from across the nation. More information and registration are available at www.hsenterpriseforum.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. 
Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.